Hello everyone and welcome to the July 1st edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Encompass Health Corporation is one of the United States' largest providers of post-acute health care services. It offers both facility-based and home-based post-acute services in 36 states and Puerto Rico through its network of inpatient rehabilitation hospitals, home health agencies, and hospice agencies. In California, they operate the Encompass Health Rehabilitation Hospital of Bakersfield and Encompass Health Rehabilitation Hospital of Modesto. The company has agreed to pay $48 million to resolve allegations that some of its inpatient rehabilitation facilities provided inaccurate information to Medicare. The scheme was allegedly to maintain their status as an IRF and to earn a higher rate of reimbursement, and to seek reimbursements for some admissions to its IRFs that were not medically necessary. Medicare and Medicaid use information about patients' diagnosis to determine whether a facility is properly classified as an IRF and determine the levels of reimbursement the facility is awarded for specific patients. The government alleged that some of the Encompass IRFs falsely diagnosed patients with what they referred to as disuse myopathy when there was no clinical evidence for this diagnosis. Additionally, Encompass IRFs allegedly admitted patients who were not eligible for admission to an IRF because they were too sick or disabled to participate in or benefit from intensive inpatient therapy. Officials say this important civil settlement concludes a lengthy, comprehensive investigation that brought to light a nationwide scheme that the government contends was intended to defraud public health programs. The settlements resolve three lawsuits filed by a former contract physician, the former director of therapy operations in Arlington, Texas, and the former medical director in Richmond, Virginia. The lawsuits were filed under the key Tom or whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act, which permit private individuals to sue on behalf of the government for false claims and to share in any recovery. Here, the whistleblowers collectively share in the settlement with the amount of $2.4 million. The fate of thousands of lawsuits seeking to hold drug makers responsible for fueling the opioid epidemic hinges in part on a thorny bankruptcy law legal question. Can a company use a bankruptcy to stop lawsuits from cities and states? The bankruptcy judge is expected to decide this month whether to halt more than 160 active lawsuits brought by state attorneys general, cities, and counties against opioid manufacturer Incess Therapeutics Incorporated. Incess requested the cases be paused when it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in Delaware earlier this month. A bankruptcy filing would normally halt active litigation immediately, giving a company such as INSIS 
times to reorganize and preserve money that would otherwise be spent fighting the cases. But a long-standing exception in bankruptcy law can keep the lawsuits alive if they are enforcing government officials, police, or regulatory power. The exception provides that government actions seeking to enforce laws related to matters such as public health and safety are not automatically stayed by a company's bankruptcy filing, as are other lawsuits. State and local officials are suing INSYS and other drug makers in an attempt to address harm from an opioid crisis that has now killed nearly 400,000 people. The Minnesota and Maryland attorneys general are opposing the request to halt the lawsuits. They say that criminal enterprises should not be permitted to shield themselves from the consequences of their misconduct by running to bankruptcy court and obtaining the equivalence of a stay that allows them to evade justice. The opioid crisis is a national public health emergency, they say in the filing, which other state attorneys general supported, including those in New York, New Jersey, and Arizona. INSYS already had reached a $225 million settlement with the Justice Department before filing for bankruptcy. The company admitted that it bribed doctors to write prescriptions, including medically unnecessary ones for a fentanyl spray called Subsys, which was designed to treat cancer pain. INSYS still faces more than a thousand lawsuits raising similar allegations of deception and fraud in marketing its opioids. It claims that allowing the cases to continue would leave less money for its creditors, including the very government officials seeking to hold it to account, adding that its request is not an attempt to escape liability. The company has less than $40 million in the bank when filing for bankruptcy and predicts spending up to $9 million through December to continue finding, fighting pending lawsuits. The judge's ruling is expected to influence whether OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma decides to file for bankruptcy protection or not. A ruling, ruling allowing the incest litigation to proceed could discourage Purdue from seeking bankruptcy protection. While pausing the cases might signal that Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings are a viable way to halt lawsuits and take advantage of breathing room to reach a broader settlement with the plaintiffs. And now our crime report. 169 actions were taken against both licensed and unlicensed contractors after the Contractor State License Board conducted three undercover sting operations and 46 sweep operations around California. The enforcement actions were part of a nationwide effort coordinated by the National Association of State Contractors Licensing Agencies. These efforts were implemented to heighten consumer awareness about the importance of hiring licensed contractors and the risks of using those who are not licensed, and ensuring that contractors follow all relevant laws related to workers' compensation and down payments. Investigators from the Contractors State License Board Statewide Investigative Fraud Team, known as the SWIFT Team, 
partnered with several local law enforcement agencies to conduct three sting operations. These occurred at homes in Rancho Cordova, Paso Robles, and Campbell, California. Forty-six sweep operations were conducted in 17 other counties. For the stings, swift investigators contacted suspects in several ways, including through their business profiles on social media and advertisements on Craigslist. The suspected unlicensed operators came to the sting locations to place bids on projects like painting, flooring and floor covering, siding, decking, masonry, and other trades. And tree services sweeps were conducted based on tips from consumers and through coordinated efforts with partner agencies. 37 individual cases were referred to a prosecutor after a thorough investigation was made by the board. Additionally, 44 licensees were issued administrative citations, and 36 of the individuals were issued a fine for contracting without a license. 52 individuals received a notice to appear in court and may face misdemeanor criminal charges after being caught for breaking state contracting laws. A state-issued license is required to perform any contracting work that costs more than $500 in labor and materials combined. The penalty for a first conviction is up to six months in jail and a fine of up to $5,000. Thirteen of the individuals may also be charged with requesting an excessive down payment. A home improvement project down payment cannot exceed 10% of the contract total, or $1,000, whichever is less. This misdemeanor charge carries a maximum penalty of six months in jail, or up to a $5,000 fine. Twelve of the suspects did not have workers' compensation insurance for their workers. The board investigators can halt job site activity when any person with or without a contractor license does not have workers' compensation insurance coverage. Failure to comply with a stop order can result in misdemeanor charges and penalties, including 60 days in jail and up to $10,000 in fines. 36-year-old Jackie Ferrari, a Downey-based attorney, pleaded guilty to illegally selling more than 1,000 oxycodone pills after offering the opioid drugs for sale on Craigslist. The investigation into Ferrari began after a 22-year-old woman died in August 2018 of a fentanyl overdose and text messages on the victim's phone initially indicated that she may have purchased the narcotics from a drug trafficker associated with Ferrari. While investigators did not link Ferrari to that overdose death, they opened an investigation based upon evidence that she was a large-scale trafficker in opiates by way of the Craigslist website. Ferrari posted ads on Craigslist offering oxycodone and other drugs under coded names such as Foxy Roxy Dolls, which referred to Roxycodone, a short-acting version of Oxycodone. Ferrari sold a law enforcement source 50 Oxycodone pills for $1,200 during a transaction on January 10. 
Ferrari was arrested after agreeing to sell the source another 180 pills for $4,100. In her plea agreement, Ferrari admitted to informing customers that they would be required to ingest a pill in her presence to verify that they were not law enforcement. She faces a maximum sentence of 20 years in federal prison when she is sentenced on October 21. The investigation into Ferrari is being conducted by the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Task Force. The Costa Mesa Police Department and the Cypress Police Department also provided substantial assistance in the investigation. And in regulatory news, DeLive is a Menlo, Menlo Park-based crowdsourced same-day delivery startup. DeLive bridges the last-mile gap between multi-channel retailers and their customers by offering same-day service to mall shoppers. Starting this August, DeLive drivers will be employees with benefits such as coverage for workers' compensation and unemployment, paid sick leave, access to a retirement plan, and health coverage. This is a rare move by a gig economy company to change its employment model. And it's sure to be closely watched as California adjusts to last year's groundbreaking state Supreme Court ruling called the Dynamex case that makes it harder for companies to claim that workers are independent contractors. A pending bill, AB5, would codify the Dynamex case extending its reach beyond wage issues to other labor code matters, and exempting some professionals such as doctors, architects, and hairstylists. Lawmakers, companies, and unions are now thrashing out how that would work, with many gig enterprises such as Uber and Lyft seeking to be exempted. Deliv's change, which applies only to its workers in California, appears to be the first prominent California gig company to change its business model. But it likely will not be the last. DeLive, which operates in 1,400 cities in 35 metropolitan markets nationwide, works with Home Depot, Best Buy, and Macy's, as well as smaller companies. Retailers pay it for deliveries and choose whether to pass some or all of that cost along to its consumers. Uber and Lyft, the two biggest gig companies in AB5's crosshairs, have joined forces to push for a hybrid model that would include some benefits, a guaranteed wage floor, and an association to speak for drivers who would remain independent contractors. NCCI reports that more and more employers are looking at how wearable technology can be implemented in the workplace with improving employee safety as its primary goal. Devices can allow companies to monitor and track activities, analyze motions, be alerted for hazards, and augment physical capabilities. When it comes to workers' compensation, however, wearables are in their infancy. While wearables are being tested today by insurance companies, as well as other employers and their workers, the technology and its potential is primarily in the proof-of-concept phase. 
while companies are expressing interest in exploring uses for wearables as advances are made, only a handful of companies have piloted the technology to date. While some larger employers are piloting wearables, the actual use among employers overall appears to be limited so far. Wearable technology as it relates to workers' compensation ranges from measuring an employee's physical activity, posture, or location, to measuring multiple workplace conditions such as movement, light, humidity, temperature, and other environmental conditions. Some wearables can pair the data collected with third-party data such as data about weather conditions to provide a more complete picture of the working environment and associated risks. In addition to preventing injuries, wearable devices could assist injured workers returning to work and help keep them there once they return. In terms of affordability, as with any new product, wearable costs are expected to decrease over time as new companies and products enter the marketplace. However, employers may have concerns about investing in wearable devices if they have short lifespans as next-generation technology and newer versions of devices become available. And the stakeholders NCCI spoke with believe that wearable technology has the potential to be a game-changer for workers' compensation. One stakeholder indicated a 30 to 50 percent reduction in back-related injuries during the proof-of-concept stage. As wearable technology advances, the interviewed stakeholders agree that wearables are well-positioned to become an integral part of the future workplace and the workers' compensation system. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau submitted its 578-page January 1, 2020 regulatory filing to the California Insurance Commissioner. The filing contains amendments to the California Workers' Compensation Uniform Statistical Reporting Plan and amendments to the miscellaneous regulations for the recording and reporting of data and amendments to the California Workers' Compensation Experience Rating Plan. And in medical news, a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine suggests that opioid overdoses may be much more likely to happen in families when someone in the household has been prescribed these drugs. Even when a family member gets lower doses of opioids, less than 50 morphine milligram equivalents per day, the overdose risk is almost three times higher than it would be in a family where no one has been prescribed opioids. The overdose risk was nearly eight times greater when a family member was prescribed 50 to 90 morphine milligram equivalents a day. And it was more than 15 times higher at doses above 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day. The new study shows these prescriptions are important risk factors for overdose for others in the household. An overdose reduction and treatment strategies are needed for family members as well. Many states have implemented programs to restrict and track opioid prescriptions. 
and some have also enacted or considered caps on the maximum daily doses that can be prescribed. America's 82 top nonprofit hospital groups have experienced massive growth in annual revenues and their asset value. The 82 largest U.S. nonprofit hospitals recorded revenues of $296.6 billion for their primary entity. The largest systems ranked by revenues are Kaiser Foundation in Oakland with $54 billion, Partners Healthcare in Somerville, $12.7 billion, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Group in Pittsburgh, $12.5 billion, the Mayo Clinic, $11.1 billion, and Dignity Health in San Francisco at $9.9 billion. The average net asset growth year over year for the 82 nonprofit hospitals was 23.6%. That means $164 billion grew to $203 billion. The largest percentage increases in net assets were individually recorded by Ascension Health in St. Louis at 1,211%, next by Harimark Health in Pittsburgh at 271%, Baylor, Scott, and White Health in Dallas at 240% growth, and finally, Texas Health Resources in Arlington, Texas, at a 146% increase. The 82 large nonprofit healthcare providers paid out $297 million in compensation to their single most highly compensated employee. On average, the top executive in each organization made $3.5 million. Only 14 of the 82 nonprofit organizations studied properly disclosed the amount of revenues it derived from Medicare and Medicaid on their IRS 990 tax returns last year. These 14 hospitals received $100 billion in total revenues, of which $28 billion came from Medicare and Medicaid. Roughly $2 billion flowed into these nonprofit organizations from federal agencies by way of grants primarily used for research. The 82 nonprofit hospital organizations collectively spent $26.4 million on lobbying Congress last year. Huge research companies may be putting their thumb on the scale in favor of increasing public use of cannabis worldwide. A company known as EMAC Life Sciences Limited is the European medical cannabis company working to join together the latest science and research with cutting-edge cultivation, extraction, and production of cannabis. HiRIS is also a privately held UK-based biotechnology company founded in 2014 by an entrepreneurial team with deep experience in biotechnology and electronics. EMAC announced an exclusive collaboration with HiRIS to develop a comprehensive library of genetic profiles of existing cannabis varieties. 
and to industrialize DNA-based methods for the identification of its unique branded cultivars. The chief scientific officer of EMAC commented that EMAC is committed to investing in the latest innovations in cannabis cultivation, extraction, production, and other value-adding associated technologies. Earlier this month, EMAC bought French hemp-based and cannabis healthcare company Greenleaf as the legal use of cannabis for medicinal purposes has been steadily increasing. Cannabis stocks have been a growing trend on world stock markets, particularly on the Toronto Stock Exchange, after Canada became one of the first major economies to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.